BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure Season 2, Frankenstein. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief and Georgianologist, Michael Ian Black. Recording pretty much at dawn. I have been up since before six o'clock in the morn. My heart pounding as it has been for the last several days. We have been undergoing tumultuous events here in the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library and extended environs, meaning the entire black estate for reasons that are not uh, necessarily bad, but not necessarily good, that has been part of the anxiety, the not knowing whether circumstances unfolding here are good or bad. I may have more details for you in coming episodes, but just know that over the last, let's say, week, things have been going topsy-turvy here. Again, not necessarily in a bad way or a good way, but decidedly, topsy-turvy. It has been causing all sorts of anxiety among me, my wife, my kids, the staff, and you know how the staff get um, when things aren't just so. And consequently, I'm up early, have been up early for the last several days, haven't been eating very much, which, you know, maybe that's a good thing. (laughs) You You know me. Uh, the way I eat, like a horse, like a horse, he says. So the point is, I'm anxious. I have a cup of English breakfast tea brewing right beside me. I'll take a little sip. Mm, That's some good English breakfast tea. And I thought, well, why not take advantage of the early hour and catch up with our friend, the big buddy, see if something good can't come from all of this anxiety. Uh, You know, it's just tumultuous, like, life event stuff. You know what I mean? Like, who knows? Who knows? And as I said, I won't keep it from you if there are things to report. At the moment, there is nothing to report, only possibilities, all of which are anxiety-making. When last we met the big buddy, he had confessed his presence to the family. And then they beat the shit out of him, <laughs> which, which, of course, was his greatest fear, that he would be like, hey, I'm your friend and neighbor, and they would be like, you know, just pummeling with their fists. So he has escaped 
from them. And as he said, I could have torn him apart. You know, Felix was, you know, pummeling, pummeling him and beating him about with a stick. And he was like, I could have, I could, I could have ripped that fucker's head right off, but I didn't do it because I'm a nice guy. Because he had enough understanding and empathy to put himself in their position if they were to walk in on him, eight feet tall, 300 something pounds, lumbering, grasping the legs of the old man. And, you know, they might, he might have been concerned too. So, you know, the action is picking up. That's a good thing. As the action picks up in my own life, as things unfurl with the big buddy, things unfurl for me, probably for some of you. I got the half vac, half vaccinated, waiting on my second vaccination. Last time we talked, I had gone to play poker. And uh, I woke up this morning at, I don't know what it was, 5.15, 5.20, heart a flutter, thinking to myself, I need to calm down. Maybe I'll go play poker again later today. Maybe. Just to kind of calm myself. Calm yourself. <laughs> Chapter 8, it's the big buddy speaking, cursed, cursed creator, why did I live? Why in that instant did I not extinguish the spark of existence which you had so wantonly bestowed? To be or not to be, right? That's what we're getting to. I know not. Despair had not yet taken possession of me. My feelings were those of rage and revenge. I could, with pleasure, have destroyed the cottage and its inhabitants, and have glutted myself with their shrieks and misery. When night came, I quitted my retreat and wandered in the wood, and now, no longer restrained by the fear of discovery, I gave vent to my anguish in fearful howlings. I was like a wild beast that had broken the toils, destroying the objects that obstructed me and ranging through the wood with a stag-like swiftness. Oh, what a miserable night I passed. The cold stars shone in mockery, and the bare trees waved their branches above me. Now and then, the sweet voice of a bird burst forth amidst the universal stillness. All, save I, were at rest or in enjoyment. I, like the arch-fiend, bore a hell within me, and finding myself unsympathized with, wished to tear up the trees, spread havoc and destruction around me, and then to have sat down and enjoyed the ruin. Great writing, great language, great imagery. There's something happening. There's action. It's active. We understand what he's going through. So the descriptive stuff all sort of, uh, you know, impels us forward. I love it. The arch Fiend. I've never heard that term before, but I, but I also like that. I assume that just means Satan, the arch fiend. I'm more, more tea, guys, more tea. I don't know if you can hear that I'm amped up or not, or if I sound normally amped. The fearful howlings, a wild beast, the arch fiend who bore a hell within him. I love that, all of that. 
So he, he keeps going. But this was a luxury of sensation that could not endure. I became fatigued with excess of bodily exertion. Yesterday I was on a podcast and uh, it was, you know, the sports announcer, Joe Buck, it was his podcast with a guy named Oliver Hudson, who I only much, much, much later in the podcast belatedly realized that that uh, Oliver Hudson is Goldie Hawn's son and Kate Hudson's brother and Kurt Russell's stepchild. And we were talking about my book and, you know, issues around men and stuff. And then at the end, they were so nice. But, I, but so I, they weren't patronizing, but I took it patronizingly like they you know they were like so what are you up to these days and i'm like well nothing i'm fucking unemployed and they're like well tell us about your podcast your podcast is so great you know what a great idea for a podcast and i had to disabuse them of that notion you know they were trying to be supportive they were like so you pick a book and you read it i was like yeah it's a terrible idea i mean i'm like i'm like you know joe buck like you know, he's sitting there surrounded by Emmys because I could see them on the Zoom and, you know, incredible sports memorabilia. And I'm like, dude, you know, I'm reading 19th century literature out loud and commenting on it as I go. Like, let's not, <laughs> let's not pretend this is anything anybody wants to hear. I'm like, we have a very small, lovely community of listeners. Um, and that's fine. That's all it needs to be. But I remember just feeling distinctly embarrassed at the tone of the very, very successful sports announcer prodding me, like, tell us about your little podcast. And he did not say little, but that's how I heard it. So I'm just laughing, thinking about that, as I so often do when I think about myself. I do find myself laughing uh, more out of pity than anything else. If they're not going to patronize me, by God, I will. Which is it? Patronize or patronize? One of them, you patronize a store, you patronize a C-list comedian. This was a luxury of sensation that could not endure. I became fatigued with excess of bodily exertion and sank on the damp grass in the sick impotence of despair. Ooh, the sick impotence of despair. That's such a lovely image. You ever feel that where you're just sort of, you know, uh, morose and the black storm has descended upon you and you just feel noodly. You can't do anything. Your limbs are heavy, but not in the rigid, turgid, phallic sense. They're heavy with the inertia of non-movement. There was none among the myriads of men that existed who would pity or assist me. And should I feel kindness towards my enemies? No. From that moment, I declared everlasting war against the species and more than all, against him who had formed me and sent me forth to this unsupportable misery. So just to put a pin in this for a second, I, I feel like he's jumping the gun a little bit. I really do. 
Like, if you walked in, as we said before, as I said before, you walked in on somebody grabbing the legs of your old man, and you're eight feet tall and 300-something pounds, that's going to startle him. You understand that. That's why you didn't tear them limb from limb to begin with. So, you, you know, maybe give it a breather. Let the old man explain himself and explain the story to the kids. Then, in a day or so, knock on the door, say, it is I. He who startled you so, I'm not a bad guy. I just need to talk. I'm sure they would be receptive to that once they heard the old man's tale. You know? Don't just declare war on humanity willy-nilly like that. Believe me. Every time I have declared war on anybody willy-nilly like that, I have come to regret it. When I invaded Spain... That was one of the biggest mistakes of my life. Who am I with no military training, very little money, no sense really of even how to get to Spain other than to take an airplane there and hope that they put me in Madrid like I asked, no, st- no strategy beyond I'm going to invade Spain, no armies at my disposal, very few supplies other than a cliff bar or two that I brought with me, and here I am invading Spain and and declaring war on them and trying to defeat them as a nation. What was I thinking? It was a very bad mistake, and I feel like Big Buddy is maybe walking into the same trap I did. Except in this case, he's not just declaring war on those Spanish savages, he's declaring war on the whole of humanity. I'm telling you, it didn't end well for me, and it's not going to end well for him. All right, let's take a little break, just for a sec or two. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sip some more tea, try to bestill my heart, and uh, we'll be back in a moment here on Obscure. back. I was just reminiscing about the time I invaded Spain and what a mistake that was. I was just having a little tea. I'm going to have a little more. Mmm. English breakfast. Fabulous. The sun rose. I heard the voices of men and knew that it was impossible to return to my retreat during that day. Accordingly, I hid myself in some thick underwood, determining to devote the ensuing hours to reflection on my situation. The pleasant sunshine and the pure air of day restored me to some degree of tranquility, and when I considered what had passed at the cottage, I could not help believing that I had been too hasty in my conclusions. That's what I just said! I had certainly acted imprudently. It was apparent that my conversation had interested the father in my behalf, and I was a fool in having exposed my person to the horror of his children. I ought to have familiarized the old de Lacy to me, and by degrees to have discovered myself to the rest of his family when they should have been prepared for my approach. But I did not believe my errors to be irretrievable, and after much consideration... I resolved to return to the cottage 
Seek the old man, and by my representations, win him to my party. Okay. Big Buddy, Mary, me, we're all on the same page. That is the logical conclusion. Hey, things went a little cuckoo there for a second. Let's rewind the clock. You know, let's set it ticking again, and we'll give it another shot. If things should go cuckoo again, okay. Then we declare war on all of humanity, right? Then we take uh, our Sith and we just lop off the Scythe, Sith, Scythe, S-C-Y-T-H-E, and we lop off the heads of humanity. We invade and we destroy, okay? We give it another shot, though. Maybe, you know, you knock on their door, they're like, okay, hey, we, you know what? We act a little hasty too, and we apologize. We're out in the back. We're making s'mores. We'd love for you to sit down, not on the good chair because you could break it, but just, you know, maybe on the ground and let's have some s'mores and talk it out. Okay. Like that could be the solution. These thoughts calmed me. And in the afternoon, I sank into a profound sleep. But the fever of my blood, oh, do I know about the fever of blood right now? I'll tell you that, buddy. Did not allow me to be visited by peaceful dreams. The horrible scene of the preceding day was forever acting before my eyes. The females were flying and the enraged Felix tearing me from his father's feet. I awoke exhausted. And finding that it was already night, I crept forth from my hiding place and went in search of food. I mean, he's just describing my last three days. It's funny how, you know, it's that plate of shrimp thing where, you know, you hear plate of shrimp once and then you're hearing it all the time. And I'll be honest, having talked about the example of plate of shrimp before and saying, oh, suddenly you hear plate of shrimp all the time. I have literally never heard the phrase plate of shrimp uttered in my life other than when referring to that phrase. Ever. And I, and I bet none of you have either. Just those three words together, plate of shrimp. Nobody's ever said them, except in that example. But let's say the better, the better analogy is like you can find anything you want, any answer to any question in the Bible. You know, you got a question, you open up the Bible and you can interpret whatever you find there to answer your question or tarot card reading or whatever. I mean, I find that all the time when I'm reading one of these books, obscure or this, that you find parallels to your own life routinely in literature, because we all undergo the same sorts of events all the time. You know, humanity, what are we? We're just, it's like that Disney song. It's the circle of life, baby. You know, it's all the Lion King. You know, just animals born, killing each other, dying. That's what we are. Humans are no different. When my hunger was appeased, I directed my steps towards the well-known path that conducted to the cottage. All there was at peace. I crept into my hovel and remained in silent expectation of the accustomed hour when the family arose. That hour passed. The sun mounted high in the heavens, but the cottagers did not appear. I trembled violently apprehending some dreadful misfortune. The inside of the cottage was dark, and I heard no motion. I cannot describe the agony of this suspense. Yeah, they moved, right? If you wake up and Sasquatch is in your living room, and you're like, you're basically an old man, 
two women and some dude, uh, you know, an old blind guy, and you have to go out to make your living. And Sasquatch is literally living next door and he's coming into the house and grabbing the old man's feet. You're pro- and, and, you know, and your fortunes have improved somewhat. You're probably going to be like, you know what? Maybe we should move. We've only been here a year or so anyway. You know, we don't have any great attachment to this place. Maybe we just move. And maybe that's what happened. Presently, two countrymen passed by, but pausing near the cottage, they entered into conversation using violent gesticulations, but I did not understand what they said as they spoke the language of the country, which differed from that of my protectors. Remember, he's in Germany, but he's learned to speak French. Soon after, however, Felix approached with another man. I was surprised as I knew that he had not quitted the cottage that morning and waited anxiously to discover from his discourse the meaning of these unusual appearances. Do you consider, said his companion to him, that you will be obliged to pay three months' rent and to lose the produce of your garden? I do not wish to take any unfair advantage, and I beg, therefore, that you will take some days to consider of your determination. It is utterly useless, replied Felix. We can never again inhabit your cottage. The life of my father is in the greatest danger, owing to the dreadful circumstance that I have related. My wife and my sister will never recover from their horror. I entreat you not to reason with me any more. Take possession of your tenement and let me fly from this place. Felix trembled violently as he said this. He and his companion entered the cottage in which they remained for a few minutes and then departed. I never saw any of the family of Delacy more. So as I said, they were like, yeah, we gotta, we, we gotta get out of this place. No matter what something we do, how get out of this place? Really an understandable reaction from the family Delacy. And we can't really blame them for quitting the place, although methinks uh, Agatha and Safi, you know, maybe overreacting just a smidge to what happened, okay? You saw a guy, I understand he was in the house, but nobody was hurt, nothing was taken. The father probably could have just explained what happened, and they could have been like, oh, okay, it wasn't exactly what we thought, but instead they're, you know, shock horror, we're never going to recover from this thing, gasp, they're panting, they're sweating, they're, you know, falling down on fainting couches every which way. And I don't understand why the old man is in the greatest danger in terms of his health, but okay, fine. But I think Big Buddy understands that this was his fuck up as much as anything. And I think you and I, reader, know that the family de Lacy would have eventually opened their arms to the Big Buddy, particularly if it meant never having to go gather up some fucking firewood ever again, never having to shovel the walk again, you know? He's the best friend they ever had. They just don't know it. (sighs) I continued for the remainder of the day in my hovel in a state of utter and stupid despair. My protectors had departed and had broken the only link that held me to this world. For the first time, the feelings of revenge and hatred filled my bosom and I did not strive to control them but allowing myself to be borne away by the stream, I bent my mind towards injury and death. When I thought of my friends, of the mild voice of Delacy, 
the gentle eyes of Agatha and the exquisite beauty of the Arabian. These thoughts vanished, and a gush of tears somewhat soothed me. But again when I reflected that they had spurned and deserted me, anger returned, a rage of anger, and unable to injure anything human, I turned my fury towards inanimate objects. As night advanced, I placed a variety of combustibles around the cottage, and after having destroyed every vestige of cultivation in the garden, I waited with forced impatience until the moon had sunk to commence my operations. As the night advanced, a fierce wind arose from the woods and quickly dispersed the clouds that had loitered in the heavens. The blast tore along like a mighty avalanche and produced a kind of insanity in my spirits that burst all bounds of reason and reflection. I lighted the dry branch of a tree and danced with fury around the devoted cottage, my eyes still fixed on the western horizon, the edge of which the moon nearly touched. A part of its orb was at length hid, and I waved my brand. It sank, and with a loud scream I fired the straw and heath and bushes which I had collected. The wind fanned the fire, and the cottage was quickly enveloped by the flames which clung to it and licked it with their forked and destroying tongues. As soon as I was convinced that no assistance could save any part of the habitation, I quitted the scene and sought for refuge in the woods. So, you know, what did he just say in the previous page that he was the archfiend? He felt himself to be the archfiend uh, filled with hell, with a hell inside him. I, I can't remember exactly how he said it. But now he's, now he's acting it out. Now he's being satanic. He is taking his hell from within and placing it without. He is setting fire to the world. Remember, for the past eight months, that's the only world he's even known. That hovel, that cottage, those people. And now all of it destroyed in the flames of his rage. The fort in destroying tongues. He is Satan made human. The only difference is he didn't ask for anything in return. You know, usually you make a deal with the devil. You ask for something. You're like, I want to I play guitar like Johnny. No, fuck it. I want to play guitar better than Johnny. And Satan's like, yeah, no problem, bro. All I need is your soul. And you're like, yeah, deal. But here, he's, he's skipping that. He's just like, I am Satan. I am hellfire, unleashed. And he's dancing as the fire consumes the cottage. We can only imagine what that dance looks like. In my mind, it's the cabbage patch. In my mind, he is doing a little bit of running man and a little bit of cabbage patch. And he looks pretty good too, because we know he's very, we know he's agile. You know, we know he's fleet of foot and he's got good eye-hand coordination. He probably looks pretty goddamn good looking the cabbage patch in The Running Man. And now, with the world before me. Footnote. The world's before me. We have a footnote. And we're going to go to it. Footnotes. 
with the world before me, the expulsion of Adam and Eve from Eden. This is again from Paradise Lost. The world was all before them where to choose their place of rest. Well, this is, I mean, it's an interesting comparison because God expelled Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, right? But this expulsion, this exile from his own Eden is more self-imposed, right? Like nobody's really even looking for him, it seems like. He could stay there. He could cultivate that garden. He could eat the produce. He could continue to stack the firewood. He could keep the place tidy. He could try to befriend the new tenants who come at some point. He could even inhabit the cottage until new tenants come. But his heart has already been expelled from the Garden of Eden. And so when that happened, he has to burn the whole thing down. No more idyllic Eden for our big buddy. Everything must go. 80% off. Fire sale. And so that's what's happening. Now with the world before me, whither I should bend my steps, I resolve to fly far from the scene of my misfortunes. But to me, hated and despised, every country must be equally horrible. At length, the thought of you crossed my mind. I learned from your papers that you were my father, my creator, and to whom could I apply with more fitness than to him who had given me life? Among the lessons that Felix had bestowed upon Safi, geography had not been omitted. I had learned from these the relative situations of the different countries of the earth. You had mentioned Geneva as the name of your native town, and towards this place I resolved to proceed. He's gotten his mission, and he has chosen to accept it. He's going to Geneva, and there to find his creator. It is as if Adam and Eve, having been exiled from Eden, said, well, we know where God lives, and we're going to find him, and we're going to kill him, which is a powerful idea for a story, I have to say. But the whole, you know, does the does the... Yeah, I guess it I guess it does track. I mean, I guess the analogy tracks. Frankenstein is God, Big Buddy is Adam. There is no Eve, although that's what I think he's going to ask of Frankenstein, make me an Eve, but we don't know. Make me Eve and I'll leave you alone. You know, make me somebody to love and I'll leave you alone. And I'll save humanity. I mean, there is Bride of Frankenstein after all. If there's Bride of Frankenstein in the movies, maybe there's Bride of Frankenstein in the books, we don't know. But anyway, it's like Adam I mean, that's, that's literally what it is. Adam being kicked out of Eden and going, uh, God, I know where you live, you motherfucker, and I'm going to kill your ass. Except in this case, Adam is more powerful than God. He's stronger, faster, fitter, bigger, scarier, better in the snow, better at camo. He's bionic. God's not bionic in this case. Good idea for a TV show, Bionic God. I had an idea. You know, they, I feel like they've been talking about rebooting the Bionic Man, the $6 million man, for years. Like Marky Mark, I feel. Mark Wahlberg was attached to do it, I think, for a little while or something. My idea for the $6 million man reboot, and I think it's a really funny idea, is that 
I, maybe I shouldn't even say it because it's a good idea, but nobody listens to this podcast as Joe Buck and Oliver Hudson made clear. My idea is in 1975, whenever the $6 million man takes place, right? The government created this program to build the world's first bionic man, and they gave them $6 million to do it. And so they spent the $6 million and they made the world's first bionic man. And it's such a secret government program that nobody, it was buried deep in the Department of Defense, you know, buried deep, deep, deep. Nobody knows, nobody knew about it really. You know, the one guy who knew who knew about it, uh, what was his name, Oscar something? You know, let's say he died, but the program didn't die with him. So for the last 50, 60 years, they've continued with this program, but their budget never increased. So all they have is the $6 million that they had in 1975 to keep their experiments and stuff going. So anytime they want to do something, all they have is $6 million. So they can, you know... They, they, <laughs> they're making really, really, really cheap, low-end bionic people whose parts barely work. You know, you know the processing speed has increased and everything else, and like parts that were a lot more then are cheaper now, but you know, inflation is going to eat you alive. So the new $6 million man is basically off-the-shelf parts and can kind of do stuff, but he kind of breaks down. But you know, he's still the bionic man. That is what I think would be a funny take on the $6 million man. Please don't steal that. I'm going to go out to Hollywood. I'm going to pitch that to everybody. Every, I, I may just go on to uh, the corner of Hollywood and Vine with a bullhorn and pitch it like that for all the good that it will do. But I think it's a funny idea. All right. We end today with a new mission from the big buddy. He's going to Geneva. He's going to find his father. He's going to rip his fucking head off and eat his brains. He didn't say that it's implied. So I'm excited. I'm amped. I have had too much caffeine. I haven't slept in about three days. And if there's news to report, I will report it. As I said, it's neither good nor bad. It's just tumultuous. And with that, I will leave you. And until next time, I will leave you until next time on another puzzling episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. Obscure Season 2, Frankenstein, is produced by Robin Lynn, Mary Shimkin, Jennifer Brennan, and myself, Michael Ian Black, recorded in places as far and wide as California and the wilds of Connecticut and spots in between. Original music by Craig Wedren. Join us at patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black, where starting at $5 a month, you can support this podcast and get access to all kinds of obscure goodies, including early episodes and writings and musings. There's also bonus podcasts. There is our semi-regular book club. All of it can be yours at patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black. <laughs>